0: You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, Many
1: Voices, Community Radio.
0: This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Richmond-based poet and educator Jamie Williams. Jamie has been teaching spoken word poetry workshops in K-12 schools since 2016, and in 2017 he co-founded the Rich Oak Alchemy Open Mic and the CSU East Bay Slam Poetry Club. That same year, he won the National Poetry Slam's Compliment death Match, which earned him the title of the nicest poet in the country. Jamie has toured internationally, published two chapbooks, and performed at the Twitter, Yelp, and Google headquarters. He is also an accomplished screen and stage actor. When he isn't teaching, performing, or organizing, Jamie spends his time watching anime, writing music, and pursuing his master's degree. Jamie Williams, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Hello. Thank
1: you. I'm so happy to be here today.
0: I'm so delighted that you're here. So I wanted to sort of start, I, I set, to set this up a little bit. I met you at an event hosted by Palenque Arts in Seaside, and the first thing that I noticed about you was your energy. You just radiate this passion and enthusiasm, and you use your energy to really guide your audience, which I found like really interesting to watch, just the way that people responded to you in the audience, as well as the way that you're sort of responding to them, Is that something that you've always had as part of the way that you perform? Or is it something that's evolved as you have developed as a poet and a performer?
1: Um, It's definitely something I feel like I've always had my whole life. I've always been performing. It started with um, acting when I was in elementary. And then just performing in a lot of different elements in that way as well. Um, But there is also a refining process. Hmm. Um, I've been a professional poet since 2016 and I've been on a lot of stages, been in a lot of rooms. So I've kind of learned how to like tailor my performance to the audience, know, like what people want to hear, know how the poem should sound. Um, so like, for instance, if I perform at a bookstore, um, the same poem that I do at like a festival, it could be the same poem, but they will have two completely different energies.
0: Yeah, I'm actually I'm really interested about that. I remember at that Palenque Arts event, uh, one of the poems that you read, I think, was uh, about gentrification in Richmond and East East Bay. And I'm kind of curious how you present a poem like that, especially in some of the like tech headquarters that you've been at where, right, like you're kind of presenting to an audience that has really driven gentrification.
1: In my experience, it either goes one or two ways either it starts a lot of really interesting conversations afterwards or people get really offended and they stand up and they leave. I've had that happen several times. Um, and I love when that happens too, because oh. I'm like, if you're like so offended, like the shoe fit, mm-hmm. you know, the gentrification shoe fit and you feel like very like called out. And I would have loved to have that conversation with you, but I'm glad that you at least like saw that in yourself. Yeah. Like you're feeling it. Yeah, whatever they do with that on their own time, totally up to them.
0: When you have had conversations with people after some of your, some of your events, some of your performances, what are those conversations like? What are, what are some of your sort of favorite takeaways from conversations you've had about your poetry?
1: Yeah, um, again, one or two ways. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of microaggressions and backhanded compliments that I deal with. Um, especially from like wealthy, older people. Hmm. So I I definitely have to navigate that situation a handful of times. But then on the other hand, I also meet like a lot of cool people who's like, you know, I want to learn more. How can I get involved? How can I bring you somewhere else? Like what you said was so cool. Can you tell me more about you? Can you tell me how I can, you know, have you perform that again somewhere else? Hmm. Um. So it's, yeah, it either goes really bad or really good in my experience a lot of the times,
0: well, I think it's I mean, I think that's really interesting. and right. Like I think when you're writing poetry, there's always an element of vulnerability and and courage to it, right? Like any kind of art that you're doing is is pouring yourself into it. and it's it's interesting to to hear you talk about the ways that you have navigated those discussions afterward with with different people. I'm curious too, because you are, of course, an actor as well as a poet. How has acting informed the way that you think about poetry, not just in the performance, but in the writing itself?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. For me, operative words. Um, what I mean mm. by that is, I think it was two or three years ago, I did um, Macbeth with African American Shakespeare Company. And it was my first time doing Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is very, very language heavy. Yeah. So it, it was kind of hard for me. So I spent like a lot of time, you know, with like coaches and stuff like that. And I learned a a lot about like in Shakespeare and this translates to a lot of different writing, like operative words, which words you want to give power, which Mm. words want to hit the audience, which words you want to stay on. Um, And that kind of translated not to necessarily the way I write my poems, but the way I perform my poems, because also I have a a very long history with music. I've been writing music since I was four or five. So a lot of my poems are like very lyrical. And yeah, it it just, the acting side really taught me like how to make the words stand up a little bit.
0: Yeah, like here's what you emphasize and here are the things where you maybe want to draw back.
1: Yeah, and also like, when do I pause? When do I Mm -hmm. speed up? Yeah, just like all the the technical stuff, making sure the words are heard more.
0: Hmm. What is your writing process like? I I noticed that the poems in these two chapbooks—they all have dates attached to them. Is there—is that sort of a date when you decide that it's finished? Is it a date of a first draft? How does yeah? How do how do you go about writing and editing
1: and iterating? Yeah. Um, so the dates behind my poem um, is something I started doing very instinctively when I started writing poetry, um, and it took me years to figure out why I did it. For me, I want my poetry to be like I was here. On this earth, hmm. you know, and those dates are the days I finished the first draft. So it's like around this time, I was thinking about this. Even if I write two or three drafts later and the poem changes over the course of years, I still keep that original date because it's pretty interesting as well. You know, sometimes I'll like read one of my old poems and be like, oh, that's so interesting. I wrote this in June when so-and-so happened, you know, when this situation happened. Right. So for me, it's just like a reminder that like I was here on the earth. And also to like hopefully have that connect with my readers as well. There's a poem that's not in either of my chat books, but I wrote it on what day was that? On Christmas, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, so like that's the, the date that was attached to it. Um, so when somebody else reads that poem, if it ever comes in a book, uh, they can respond and be like, oh, I was doing that this day.
0: I like that. It it really sort of emphasized the the conversational aspect of of poetry, of both the sort of reading and the writing of it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your work as an educator. How do you approach teaching poetry?
1: So this year, I got my credential, and it's my first time as a full-time teacher. But I have been a teaching artist since 2016, Working with a lot of nonprofit orgs and a lot of different um school districts. So each org kind of has like their own pedagogy, their own, you know, way mm. to teach poetry. So what I do in my own classroom, I kind of take these, the, you know, the best practices I've learned right. from working with all of these different programs and kind of put it together. So typically I do like a scaffolding method, you know, where like we'll talk about, you know, just the topic, the theme, something very low stakes. Um, I will guide the student through like a little quick lesson. They'll get like an example of the poem, and then they have to write and perform the poem. And then a few days later, we go back and then we make a second draft, Um, you know, once they've had some time to step away from right. the poem, just to add on to it.
0: So it sounds like it's it's very focused toward
1: getting them to write as well. Yeah, writing and performance. A, a lot of performance too, like when they write they don't perform every poem they write to the whole class but they will to at least one person in the class.
0: Do you find that yeah, just, I'm I'm interested to hear a bit about the types of the kinds of poetry that your students write and sort of what you what kind of insights you get from working with them.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um so for folks who don't know, spoken word poetry um is very deeply tied to social justice. Giving voice to um people in groups who haven't felt like they've been heard for a really long time. So a lot of the issues that we talk about are about identity. It's about the ways that the American government has like lied. It's a lot about gender identity. It's a mm. lot about sexism and racism. But I don't like stay super heavy all the time. Sometimes you do like a lot of fun writings as well, where it's like they'll be writing about cheeseburgers or like writing about like their favorite TV show. Um, So I kind of have like a a good little balance going. So it's not just like heavy, 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 heavy. (laughs) right? Yeah. But, you know, it's in there. It's in there. Are there particular
0: aspects of poetry that you find your students are consistently drawn to or are they kind of all over the map and, and diverse in their interests?
1: I think that that depends on the environment. It depends on the program. It depends on the school. It depends on the age. Because I've literally taught, like, as young as five years old to, like, parents with their kids writing together at the same time. Like, in all capacities. Um, So, yeah, that just kind of depends on their age, their demographics, and where they're at.
0: I really like, I would love to see some of the stuff that comes from the parents and kids writing together. That seems like it's a really... Fulfilling exercise for everyone Yeah, well. it
1: gets very wonky. <laughs> very <laughs> wonky. <laughs> um, do
0: your students ever surprise you?
1: Oh, yeah, all the time. We do poetry in class, but I also lead after school clubs for people who really, really like poetry, who um, want to write about topics that they don't have to, you know, because in right. class, I always choose the topic. But in poetry club, you can write about, you know, whatever you want and then you can get feedback from the club you can write poems together so i remember a few years ago i was coaching a fourth and fifth grade poetry class and mm. this one girl she wrote a poem all about greek mythology and i didn't know she was into cool. greek mythology but like she knew more than i did like i can tell like she really studied it and then like another student she wrote like a poem that was based off um I think it's a song by Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. Is that Yeah, by Queen? it's a
0: Queen song. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, and like she wrote like a poem like about that song. And I was like, how do you know this song? You're like eight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Queen is universal. It spans all age groups. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I definitely get surprised a lot in my work. Yeah.
0: Well, I think now's a good time for us to hear some of your poetry. So um, I thought we might start with, your poem, Drowning, from the chapbook, Breathing Underwater. Definitely. Can you maybe set it up a little bit for us first?
1: Yeah. So um, I have two chapbooks. Earlier, you were talking about poetry, being very vulnerable. Um, My first chapbook, To Be Black is to Love, is mostly about my experience with romance. Um, So Mm -hmm. it was very, very personal. My second chapbook, I kind of took a step back. Like the, the poems are still personal. I still relate to them, but I want it to be a bit more general mm. because the the idea for that book was being Black in America often feels like you're expected to breathe underwater. You know, you're constantly mm. drowning, but you have to just keep surviving somehow. And yeah, this was the first poem that I wrote for this book um, before I even knew that the book was coming And the, this poem is called Drowning. And I would just like love the concept. So that's why it's the first poem in the book. It kind of like inspired uh, this whole thing. So this is Drowning. My toes taste the cold currents before I realize that I am standing black and barefoot in a wasteland of water. Looking back, I realized that the waves carried me here without consent. Yet nevertheless, I continue to call this ocean home. And here, I hear barracudas biting into bones for breakfast. I see sharks sharpening their jaws, fouling their fangs with the remains of decrepit skeletons. You see, the sea is a dangerous place. It is the bloodiest of whirlpools where fish who share my features replaced their name with the word lunch, lawless lagoon where the mighty sand dollar reigns supreme. But today, the skin on my feet dared me to go deeper into his deaths. And I almost did only stopping after I heard the voice of death. The reaper looks a lot like a riptide Hatred bubbles out of his throat before he threatens to sink me in the familiar tone that sounds a lot like genocide. He says, boy, I will swallow you whole like I did your ancestors. So make no mistake. The waves were a warning and I'll drown you in a watery grave if you ever forget your place. If you ever forget that this ocean was not made for your kind. The irony being that the brine of this country is salty with black blood, this country is a ship that will trade my hope for freight of obedience, a ship that will smash my self-worth into flotsam. If only black bodies could breathe underwater, we build Atlantis in the name of our ancestors. If only this ocean was kind to my kin, then Black bodies would buoy because of freedom. If only there was an oasis of acceptance in America.
0: Thank you for reading that. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. I can see why. When you were setting this up, you said, right, like this collection is about this, this idea that to be black in America means you are constantly underwater and you have to find a way to breathe and to move on and to survive anyway. And this poem is called Drowning, right? It's that title of drowning evokes kind of a, you know, not, not, not being necessarily up to that task. But of course, the poem itself is not quite there. So I'm kind of, or not quite about, right? Like, it's not a failure. It's, that's not what it's about. So I'm kind of curious about that sort of interplay. Like, wh- why did you want to start with drowning in this book about breathing underwater?
1: I think that uh, it sets the tone. Um, because again, um, you know, this book, it, it's a lot less about me than my first book was. Mm. It's more just about being Black in America. So even though this one poem itself is about drowning, it speaks to the hardship. It speaks of the genocide. It speaks to you know all the enslaved African people right. who like jumped off the ship, you know, yeah. and they chose yeah. death. Yeah, those images
0: are really clear. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know. So it kind of like sets up the rest of the book. You know, so like there's there's little pockets of hope in the book. There's mm-hmm. pockets of strength and triumph and beauty. But it's important to, like, start with, like, the most visceral feeling of, like, fear and, like, hopelessness.
0: Well, and and speaking of that sort of visceral fear and hopelessness, right, like, you really get that in a lot of the, the imagery in this poem, right? The bloodiest of whirlpools, the reaper who looks a lot like a riptide, the barracudas biting into bones for breakfast, When you're writing, and especially when you're thinking about a poem like this that is less personal and is meant to more sort of evoke an experience um, across many people, something that's a little bit more um, universalized or general, how do you think about metaphor and imagery?
1: Yeah, definitely. So metaphor and imagery were very, very present in this poem, especially extended metaphor, the water imagery. Right. Um, I, I just was like grabbing things that, like you know, <laughs> reminded me of like being at the bottom of the ocean and, you know, things that are like in water. And um, so there's like ships, there's ocean, there's sharks, there's barracudas, there's sand dollars. You know, I just like really wanted to paint up, you know, set the book Breathing Underwater.
0: The last few stanzas of this poem are a series of conditionals. If only Black bodies could breathe underwater, we'd build Atlantis in the name of our ancestors. If only this ocean was kind to my kin, then Black bodies would buoy because of freedom. If only there was an oasis of acceptance in America. And I'm interested in that phrasing in particular, because it's, it's not just if, but if only. Can you tell me about that choice?
1: Again, like that goes back to like those pockets of hope that I was mm-hmm. talking about. You know, uh, because there are pockets of hope in the book. Not a lot, <laughs> but there's some. So, yeah, like, I, I kind of just, like, wanted to be, like, you know, kind of, like, give the reader, like, a little cookie. You know, just, like, okay, what if this was here? It's not, but what if? Right. And what if this was here? And if what if this was here? So, even though the poem that follows this poem is also, you know, about, like, fear and darkness, you know, um, in a certain way, um, it still kind of sets up that possibility for hope. Mm-hmm. That, like, eventually shines through in the book.
0: I really liked the choice of Atlantis, which, of course, makes sense because it is underwater. But um, I was doing a little bit of research on the sort of history of the way that Atlantis has been talked about. Um, and it it's so interesting because it has been described in in myth and in literature as both a utopia and a dystopia at different points in time. And it, it really struck me that, right? Like it starts with, you know, the the sort of mythologies kind of starts with Plato. um, But it's really a place that gets written on by other people's imaginations over time, like written over and written over and written over. And I was curious beyond it just being under the sea, whether there was any part of that that you were thinking about in this poem, any part of, like, what what is the construction that you have for the Atlantis that you'd build?
1: So there's a couple of things that I was thinking about. Uh, about midway through the poem, I say that the reaper, who looks like the riptide, says, I will swallow you like I did your ancestors. Hmm. Because, you know, enslaved Black people would often jump off right. of the ships and choose death rather than slavery. And then a little bit later, I say the brine of this country is salty with black blood, you know, brine being, you know, like the saltiness of like the water and black blood, you know, not literally black blood, blood, but, you know, blood from black people. Um, So I was kind of setting up like this idea that like, there are already black people at the bottom of the ocean. And Mm. that's why I say, if only they could breathe, you know, what if they like jumped down, but they were still alive. You know, mm-hmm. so in this sense, Atlantis is like a utopia in everybody who's ever jumped off the slave ship, anybody who's ever just like had to experience that rather than it being like this sad thing. is actually really happy.
0: Yeah, it's that kingdom of hope and refusal. Yeah.
1: So I was like kind of setting up that idea of Atlantis a few stanzas before, like indirectly.
0: Tune in to KSQD Sunday at 6 p.m. for State of Mind, produced by local therapist Deborah Sloss. One in six Americans is taking care of an older adult. Most caregivers are women, and many caregivers find it difficult to balance this responsibility with their work and other family commitments. Join us as we talk with award-winning author Laura Davis, who has a new memoir about reconciling her strained relationship with her mother while caring for her during end-of-life dementia. You'll also hear Dr. Carl Segnitz, Chief Medical Officer at Hospice Santa Cruz. He discusses palliative care and how families can navigate end-of-life transitions and find needed support. Join us for new understandings and seeds of possibility on State of Mind, Sunday evening at 6, here on KSquid 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Richmond-based poet and educator Jamie Williams, who earned the title of nicest poet in the country at the 2017 National Poetry Slam can we can we read another one? Can we um have you read Mama's Chocolate Hands?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so the drowning is the first poem in this book. Mama's Chocolate Hands is the second to last poem, um, again, because this is like that that pocket of hope starting to shine mm-hmm. through. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just gonna hop into this poem and let it speak for itself. I'm sitting down in the kitchen four feet away from my mama, watching her prepare dinner as she swiftly moves about with a certain level of practice precision. Do you smell that? The heat waves creeping out of the oven are always accompanied by an aroma. It smells like the sweetest treats that can only be conceived in the South the wines that are only allowed to melt the pink taste buds inside your mouth on Sunday. It smells like women made miracles, dashed with a tablespoon of black girl magic. It smells like overt optimism in the face of poverty. And as always, I remain seated with my wide inquisitive eyes glued to her every move. Mama's chocolate hands always lift in pots and pans. Mama's chocolate hands always chopping the onions. Mama's chocolate hands always seasoning the chicken. Mama's chocolate hands always opening cans of corns, beans, and yams today. As I watched her majestic figure move about, I wondered how many other little chocolate boys have watched their mamas as closely as I have mine. I wondered how many other people had adopted their mother's mannerisms. Because in my case, I had inherited my mother's love for life. I was birthed with her pragmatic stubbornness. I embody her ambitious tenacity. I display her filial piety in the form of a smile. These days, I'm barely home. And when I roam about in the world, I always feel like something's missing. The muscles in my abdomen start contracting, asking for something I cannot give it. My stomach starts caving in, craving a hearty helping of love that is fulfilling something similar to my mother's. Honestly, it took me two decades to realize that the kitchen has always been a symbol for life. And I have always been watching my mama. Mama's chocolate hands always lifting up all six of her kids. Mama's chocolate hands always chopping down barriers and obstacles that attempted to stymie our success. Mama's chocolate hands always making sure that we were well seasoned with knowledge and education. Mama's chocolate hands always opening massive cans of whoop-ass or any idiot foolish enough to mess with one of her babies in some days. I wanna drop my responsibilities and run home just so I can give her a hug. See her moving about in the kitchen so I can finally say, mama, do you need a hand? Matter of fact, you can lie down if you want and I'll cook dinner tonight. I'll use unconditional love as the secret spice. The same taste I've been feasting on for 23 years straight will always be attached to my memories because of you. Mama. It's time I bake you something beautiful.
0: Thank you for reading that. Definitely. I found myself really listening to the, to your cadence in that reading. Um, There were a lot of things that I noticed that surprised me from reading it on the page and that I really liked. So you, you kept saying mamas and there was a pause before chocolate hands. And similarly, there was a pause after I. And I, I'm I'm curious about those choices. What, what are you trying to convey
1: in the reading as you're doing that? With this piece in particular, you know, we were talking about those, uh, those operative words. Right. Because this poem is very much about, like, my relationship with my mom. Mm-hmm. Like, we are, like, the main two components, like, of this poem. So I wanted to make a distinction between when I was talking about her and the things I saw her do. And when I was talking about like myself and then like the things like I've done, and the things I've witnessed and the things I want to do. So those pauses kind of help the audience like hear the switches more of perspective. And also um, the last poem in the book, the next poem is called Flower Child. You know, so like hmm. I'm talking about this relationship between me and my mom. and then. The next poem is about a child, you know, a nameless right. child. Yeah, it, it just kind of helps break up the who's saying what, who's feeling what.
0: It was interesting to me reading this and and hearing it for the first time. I've actually, uh, somewhat coincidentally, I've I think I've he- heard or read like half a dozen poems that are sort of intergenerational mothers and children, usually mothers and daughters, but some mothers and sons in a kitchen. And it, it was—it's interesting because, of course, right, like that is a site of intergenerational conversation and passing down traditions and rituals and recipes. But it also had, I think, started to to me to feel like a, a like another way in which women are sort of confined to this one domain. And what interested me about your poem is that right as I was starting to feel that way, it shifts, right? You have this stuff about how the kitchen is always a symbol for life, and then. Mama is out, is out of the kitchen. She's doing all of these other things that are part of life. And I was, I was curious if that was something that you were thinking of specifically or if, it, you know, if it's just something that sort of arises out of my
1: reading of it. No, definitely. That was very intentional because it, it, in my own life, it did kind of happen like in the same way that the, the poem follows. Hmm. The first time I ever really remember asking my mom to teach me something was how to cook. Um, and my mom is so funny. Uh, whenever I would ask her about specifics, she always used to say, would you eat it? <laughs> you know, so it's like, she it was always very much like, do it on your own, you know, like I'll help you, but like, I'm not going to like hold right. your hand the whole way through. And then like, as I got older, you know, I just kind of like started realizing that like, oh, like my mom does like, she's always done these things, you know, like, um, she's always supported us. She's always looked out for us. And especially as I got like, became an educator and saw like a lot of instances with like not so great households. I Mm kind of realized how much effort my mom had put in into teaching us all these other things that like I didn't even know until I was like in my late teens, early 20s, because I just assumed everybody else grew up that way. So like in a way, the poem kind of mirrors my own realization of how badass my mom is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like it a lot. Uh, You were talking a lot about watching your mom first in the kitchen and then, you know, as she chops down barriers. And I was curious about that watching specifically, like what did observing her in these different environments and observing the way that she responds to different challenges, what did that do
1: for you? A A little bit about that is that I'm the youngest out of all of my mom's six kids. So I did a lot of watching growing up you know, um, the way she would handle my older siblings when they got in trouble or when they did something great. Or, you know, I, I just did a lot of watching growing up right. because I was the youngest. So yeah, I think that that's just the short answer of it. I was always very observant having such a large family and everybody's doing their own thing because I'm the only poet in my family. Hmm. You know, um, we all have our own, you know, personalities, our own things. So it's very interesting watching. My brothers do this. My brother do that. My mom scolds them for this. My mom praises them for that. And um, that's just kind of how I grew up.
0: There's a couple of lines in here that you talk about inheriting your mother's love of life and birthed with her pragmatic stubbornness, her ambitious tenacity. Can you tell me about how those qualities manifest for her and for you?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'll kind of go line by line. Uh, my mother's love of life. My mom, she loves to travel. She loves to spend time with the family. You know, um, she loves to eat good. She loves to laugh, you know, like, and I feel like I'm very much similar. And maybe I got that from her. You know, we just love a good time. We love to be around our loved ones. We love to go out and explore. I also say I I was birthed with her pragmatic stubbornness. My mom is also very stubborn (laughs) and she doesn't take like, Any BS. And I'm like, you know, very much the same way. Um, We're both like very logical, you know, Um, even though we acknowledge our emotions, you know, um, we're not kind of controlled by them in a sense. You know, we'll always like take a step back and think things through. Um, Ambitious tenacity. Yeah. um, My mom is just a go getter. She got like a degree, a cosmetology degree, an associate's degree and a a bachelor's degree we moved around a lot and no matter where we were, she always made it happen for us. Um, And then the last one, display her filial piety, you know, that's just about like loving your family. And I have such a huge family. Yeah. Um, And My mom is very on it about us getting together. She does like a yearly trip, uh, whether it be a cruise or go to the mountains or do this or do that. My mom makes sure that like my family, you know, spends time together. And yeah, I think that I had also got that from her as well.
0: Tell me a bit about the end of the poem. What does it mean to bake your mama something beautiful?
1: Yeah, so that part, it's about going from watching your mom, you know, just like cook and teach you all these life skills to realizing that like, oh, she's been like holding it down in all these other ways. And then that last line, it's like, okay, it's my turn now that I'm an adult. Now that I have the means, now that I'm out of my house, I want to make sure like I give you everything that you gave me. I want to make sure that you're taken care of, like in the same way that you took care of us for all these years. Um, And I think that that's just, you know, what every parent wants, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like their their child to like come back and just, you know, support them and love them and like enjoy spending time with them. Yeah. So that last line that was kind of like the call to action. Okay, I've realized these all of these things, but now I have to do something with it.
0: Because you mentioned it, you mentioned that you are the only poet in your family. I'm I'm curious where where you think that love of poetry and that sort of love of creativity comes from for you.
1: So I'm the only poet, but there's plenty of musicians. And that's why I said I grew up with music. I was mm. recording songs in studios when I was seven years old. Oh, wow. (laughs) Very, very young. Like music runs very deep in my family. When I was acting in elementary, you know, starting to explore that, my mom, she never stifled our creativity. She was always like, try this, try that. Whether it was sports, whether it was martial arts, (laughs) whether it was acting or music or whatever, as long as it was something positive and constructive or, you know, um, she would always like encourage us to do that and push us to do that. So, yeah, eventually I found poetry when I was in high school and just fell in love with it. But I was always writing, whether it be short stories or music or, you know, whatever. Poetry was just one of the later forms of literature that I discovered.
0: Well, I I think we have time for at least one more. So I'd like to have you read a poem from your other collection, To Be Black is to Love. This poem is called Anniversary the Day After
1: Valentine's. This poem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So to set this poem up a little bit, like you said, this is from my first chat book, To Be Black is to Love. And this poem specifically, it was just talking about like anniversaries, the first anniversary of like a first kiss, the anniversary of like being a couple, but also the anniversary of like breaking up. So yeah, that's what this poem is about. It's about me and my high school sweetheart breaking up and me two years later, kind of just like coming to terms with everything. Mm. And this poem, um, it really helped me like expel a lot of what I was feeling. So this is anniversary, the day after Valentine's. Today marks the two year anniversary of our first kiss. Tomorrow would have been our second anniversary as a couple. Today I woke up irritable and implacable as all hell. and felt like criticizing all the pages on every damn calendar until they felt so self-conscious that they just stopped moving altogether. If I could, I would not only restrict but forcibly reverse the intangible hands of time just so that I could spend more months holding your hand tighter and longer. Had I known that we were destined for doom anyway, then I would have at least tasted your soft lips sooner. I would have drilled more holes in my schedule so that I can have more moments to tell you how elated I was that you were my first love. Your bright brown eyes were lighthouses signaling me back home And you, significant as you were sacred meant the world to me. This isn't another love poem. Or a lack of love poem, but more like a pragmatic epiphany. Because if I could actually go back in time, I would have spent more hours accepting the fact that your loyalty is no longer mine and spent less questioning if it ever was. In search of emotional solace, I'll rejoice in the memories of the times when I held your heart close to mine. I locked it with commitment to keep it tight for as long as the world, uh, oh. I'm sorry, you or my world allowed me to. Today, I came to the conclusion that for me, enough is never enough. Even if we dated a hundred years before we broke up, I, still, I would still call out to the gods or whoever the hell you have to talk to after you get tired of hearing the sound of your own voice and complain that our time was too short. Then I would convincingly beg for 200 more. As I sit here and reminisce about the two-year anniversary of our first kiss, I can't help but think about how it happened the day after Valentine's. I can't help but recall how the jovial sun played peekaboo behind the orange and gray clouds that were stretched in the sky above the Hercules hills. I remember the sun not shining on two lip-locking teens, not even as you melted and rested in my arms. You became clouds, me becoming sky. I can't help but think about how it's possible that you could have forgotten about that day And me. This year, I'm hesitant about honoring this holiday. I hold back my urge of sending you a gift. I almost sent a beautiful bouquet with two dozen ruby red roses, one for each month that I would have selflessly dedicated to you had we stayed together. I would have at least gotten you some damn chocolates for this anniversary with hopes that they're as bittersweet as my memories. I would have written a pragmatic epiphany that was really just my long-winded way of me telling you that I'm moving on, but I still miss you. Silly me, I would have signed it with Together Forever, Valentine's, a seasonal reminder for what could have been. I just hope that next year is better. Thank you for reading that. I was so emotional.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's interesting, right? It's four years after you've written it, which then I guess is six years after the relationship. It still has that power
1: tell me yeah uh it's very funny too like I haven't read that poem in a long time and I was like damn I really felt all that you know because like like you said like that was four years ago like me writing that and that was two years after the breakup you know so I'm very like far removed from that situation but it's like always interesting and that's why I put the dates on things to like see like that's where I was (laughs) you know on (laughs) valentine's four years ago
0: Next Friday on Narrative Species, host Rick Kleffel speaks with Bessel van der Kolk, author of The Body Keeps Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. His research with Vietnam veterans resulted in a unique breakthrough means of healing a mind wounded by PTSD. That's on Narrative Species, next Friday from 5 to 6 p.m., right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Richmond-based poet and educator Jamie Williams, who earned the title of nicest poet in the country at the 2017 National Poetry Slam. There's a lot of imagery that I really liked in this one, um, but I think my favorite was, was near the beginning, where you talk about um, wanting to criticize all the pages on every damn calendar until they felt so self-conscious that they just stopped moving altogether. Like, wow, what a mood. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think for me, the lines that I really liked uh, was um, the part where I talk about, where is it? Look, I have a poem right here. I can't help but recall how the jovial sun played peekaboo mm-hmm. behind the orange and gray clouds. And later on, I say, you becoming clouds, me becoming sky. So I kind of just like recall that. And then also uh, a beautiful bouquet with two dozen ruby red roses, one for each month. I would have selflessly dedicated to you have we stayed together. Um, I think like those are like the two images that like i really I was really proud of when I wrote those,
0: yeah, it's great. I mean, I think there's there's so much in here. And, like you said, there's a lot of that sort of carried metaphor throughout, right the the ones that you just mentioned, and then there's this sort of other reference. You've got the calendars at the start, but then you talk about I would have drilled more holes in my schedule later to create more moments with you. there's just there's so much in here that really I think what it evoked to me was that. You know, that, that anger you wake up with, it's hiding other things, right? Like that anger is really about regret and nostalgia and looking back at this this love that maybe was imperfect, but it's a first love. So it's, it's always going to be that flashbulb moment.
1: Right. And I, I kind of do that a lot with this poem, like say something and then like come back to it yeah. somewhere towards the beginning. Um, I don't know where it was, but I say like, uh, here it is this isn't another love poem or a right. lack of love poem, but more like a pragmatic epiphany. And then, like, towards the end, I, like, say again, I would have written a pragmatic epiphany. So, like, for me, that's kind of like a fourth wall break. In oh, poetry. yeah. Absolutely. Like, oh, like, this is that thing that <laughs> I would have brought, but this is it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I really liked that a lot. I mean, right like that. I, I would have done this thing that I am doing right now, and I think there's something... Right. Like what it does is it sort of shifts you from one context to the other. Right. Like I would have done this and it would have meant something different, even though I'm still doing it right now. Like if we were still together, my writing this would would have a different flavor and it would probably be a different epiphany. Right. Right. I also, I mean, I liked that that idea of that pragmatic epiphany in part because right, it, it really evokes some of the stuff you were saying in the setup, right? Like that writing poetry can be this way of helping you process an emotion or an event. Can
1: you talk a little bit more about how how that works in your life? So for me, my first book, like I said, it was a lot about me. And then like once I started selling that book across the country, I was like, holy hell, a lot of strangers know a lot about me. (laughs) So my second book, I kind of took a step back and was like, okay, I want to write more general. There's still going to be some things about me and those things will be very vulnerable, but I want to just make it more general. And now I'm at a place where um, I do both. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like confined to just, you know, either it be all about me or not about me at all. Um, So for instance, one of the latest poems that I wrote It's about my experience in theater, actually, and how, like, in a lot of the plays that I've done ever since taking acting seriously, it's been about Black death, specifically Mm. the death of young Black men. Um, And it's just, like, me kind of talking about my own experience with that. And the first time I ever performed that poem, like, live in front of a crowd, I got, like, choked up. I didn't expect to because, you know, like I was so used to the words. I was like, I'm just going to read this poem. But like the feelings kind of resurfaced. And often that's what happens. Like even when I was just reading this poem from like four years ago, you know, something I haven't thought about in so long, like the feelings are still there when you go back to it.
0: Right. And that's interesting to me because your second collection, as you said, is so much about being Black in America. but, But there is a little bit more of that sort of. Uh, authorial distance. I'm interested, do you do you have that poem? Would you be willing to read that
1: one as well, the one that you were just mentioning? Yeah, I have that one. And actually, what's really cool about this poem, um, I was commissioned to write it through the Shotgun Players, which is a theater company in Berkeley, because they were having this really cool project where they were just like commissioning like a lot of different things, like 30 different right. projects. And I was like, okay, like I want to do like this, poem about my experience in theater and they're like okay let's do it so like it's about theater my experience commissioned through another theater again everything is just like kind of connected okay here's this poem there are two red curtains lacing their arms around each other's backs acting like they are old lovers their color makes you question if these drapes have been drenched in gallons of blood or if they were simply designed to appear that way. Before you get your answer, they start slowly pulling apart, revealing a dark stage lights up. The set is every major city in America all at once. Listen, as he comes from stage left, Watch as he walks to the perfect spot where the bright lights begin to bounce so hard off his dark skin that you mistake him for the night sky. And he is, and he is right in front of you now. So look at him, the black boy. I say boy because although he resembles a man, he carries a curious twinkle behind his eyes which tells me the black boy has not lived long enough to understand why the bullet is always the villain. The black boy has a villain that is related to the protest and the hashtags that are currently trending. It's just his young brain isn't finished mapping out all of the connections. So he leaves that to the playwrights. The ones who create beautiful stories honoring our ancestors, especially the ones who inherited that title too early. I have been in several of these plays and can attest to how meaningful they are. However, it'd be a lie to say it doesn't hurt watching the Black boy die don't get me wrong. I know these plays are necessary to start conversations. However, I also know how draining it is to hop on social media and see the life be snatched out of a Black body before showing up to rehearsals four nights a week, six hours a session, only to be seen as a ghost. In 2018, when I got serious about acting, my first role was a teenager named Seti Rexpin. Seti loved rapping. passing out his mixtapes on Chicago trains about halfway through the play right before he dies it is revealed that Seti has been a ghost the whole time how ironic That even though he was already dead, the audience had to watch him die in order to get his point across. In my last play, I was a South African kid named Johnny Nukosi Kwanzi, whose family was dealing with the aftermath of apartheid. And when given the chance to take the life of the white man who tortured and murdered his brother, Johnny almost does, but his brother's ghost wafts in the room and talks him out of it before disappearing for the last time. How ironic that even though he was already dead, the audience had to watch him die in order to get his point across. I guess the death of black boys likes to repeat itself in theater. So tonight, In this play, the black boy does not die. Destiny doesn't choreograph a dance with death that will leave you breathless. In this show, nobody ends up in a cast, which is to say that no one broke their legs for your amusement. And I know America isn't used to these kinds of stories. We are trained to see black boys as raindrops filling up the river of purgatory, if we even see them at all. So tonight, if only for the next 90 minutes, I beg you to stare at the black boy on stage. I say boy because I don't know his age or his name, but I know he is alive. And tonight that is all that matters. Please pay attention to the lines running out of his mouth as if they were the last words that he will ever say, but the magic is that they aren't. And by the time the red curtains reunite with the kiss, the black boy will be backstage, wrapped so tight in his mother's embrace that the whole scene will make the grim reaper jealous.
0: Thank you so much. I think you I think you did read that at Palenque as well. I think it was how you finished out the night, maybe. Um, and it's really good I was trying to since I don't have that one in front of me. I tried just to take a couple notes while we were going. um just the lines that stood out to me. and the the first one was um this line about ancestors followed by the ones who inherited that title too early. And I think that's something. I mean, we've been talking about it, but it's something that we see throughout your poetry, and that I think is becoming more and more salient um, the longer that you're writing. This, this sort of, what is it called? Uh, like anaphora, right? Like referencing back to this to this thing in a in a way that does, I think, feel almost musical a lot of the time. Yeah, definitely. Do you find that that is something, like, is that something that you are just developing in general? Is it something that feels like it belongs more in these poems that are more personal to you? Or is it like, yeah, walk me through that a little bit.
1: Something that I always tell my students is that I can show you how I write poetry. I can show you how other people write and perform poetry. But your job as the artist is to find your voice. Um, For me, I grew up writing music I still write music to this day and perform music so all of my poems have a very lyrical element so I use rhyme I use alliteration I use anaphora I use a sonosense. you know I use like all these literary devices that are about how things sound and I do that very purposefully because that's what's comfortable to me um mm-hmm. because I just like to do it I like the way that things sound um whenever I like perform a poem I want, like, there to be, like, some form, musical element. Unless, <laughs> and this sometimes happens, unless that is not what that poem requires. For instance, a lot of the poems that I write are free verse, but I've been experimenting with a lot more form, you know, like um, contrapuntals and sonnets and yada, yada, and yada, yada. For those things, I probably can't do that. <laughs> but um, whenever I write free verse, I just think that my musical background Really shines through a lot
0: this next line that I wrote down was definitely about the content, um, and I, you repeat it, but uh, it, I just think it's like such a evocative and such a like powerful line. how ironic that even though he was already dead, the audience had to watch him die to get his point across and I think part of why that struck me is because like that's conceptually that's something that that you hear in a more sort of general conversation about what it means to be Black in America, and particularly the the way that we, the way that white people approach Black death uh, when we talk about it and when we sort of look at it. And this is at the same time, right? Like you really feel how personal it is, right? Like you're talking about irony, but it, there is no ironic detachment
1: there. Yeah, earlier in the poem, I also said that like, you know, being an actor, you go to rehearsals four hours, uh, four weeks a night, six hours a session, yeah. you know, and then I'm putting in all this work and I go on stage just to be a ghost,
0: yeah. you know,
1: um, just to die in and of itself um, again yeah. <laughs> and again and again. For me, the repetition is um, very purposeful because this story gets repeated. Young black man right. dying on the news, the video that gets repeated. These kind of plays, although I only go into detail about two of those plays, I have been in and have been part of readings of a lot more of those kind of plays. Um, So it's just about, like, the repetition of young Black death. Um, And I was like, what better way to do that than to repeat that stanza?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's very effective. And I think it also makes it all the more effective when you get further on. And tonight in this play, the black boy does not die. I don't, and later, I don't know his age or his name, but I know that he's alive and tonight that's all that matters. The magic is that they aren't the last words he will ever say. Right, that, that sort of repetition of that early point, it leads, it leads you to really feel that as magic, to feel the importance of this particular play where a black boy doesn't die. And I would
1: love to see that kind of play. But yeah, uh, more times than not, I am the dead Black boy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think maybe, maybe you have to write that one. It's in the works. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Williams, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. This was lovely.
0: To learn more about Jamie and his poetry, visit JamieWilliams.com or follow him on Instagram at Jamie underscore the poet.
1: Uh, For clarification, that's J-A-M-E-Y underscore the poet. A lot of people are going to put J-A-M-I-E. It's going to be on a blog post. Boom,
0: perfect. (laughs) Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Claire Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Linear Sammons. He also wrote our theme.